Good afternoon, brethren. Very good to be here with you again, and uh, I certainly want to uh, join Mr. Crockett in welcoming Dr. Winnale here. He is uh, back now to assume his duties as Director of Church Administration, and he's been serving in the work all over Europe and uh, the Middle East and North Africa and doing a great job over there. So we're very, very glad to have him here, and I hope all of you will be praying for him and for the work that we can become an even more effective and cohesive team working together to help prepare for the kingdom of God. God wants us to do that, and I know he'll be a wonderful help in many, many ways. So please pray for him. We're glad he had a safe flight. I talked to him this morning and uh, because he's very tired, and I'll be tired after preaching while we're we're uh, leaving, but uh, at any rate, we're very glad to have him here. The great God is moving. I hope we all understand that, brethren, because he really is beginning to intervene in human affairs in a very powerful way. We've had Katrina now, the greatest natural disaster in the history of the United States of America. And they didn't say that at first, but finally when the dikes broke a couple of days after the disaster, now they're saying that and a tremendous uh, expense to rebuild that whole area. One to two hundred billion dollars it's going to take, the newspapers tell us, and that's going to make the national debt a lot worse. And frankly, it's going to hurt our balance of payments and all that kind of thing even more. The national debt's going to go on up. Interest rates will have to go up. All those things. So God is intervening. And of course, the sewage there, I shouldn't say sewage, but the water <laughs> all over New Orleans is like sewage, and they're saying that it's about 40 times worse than the allowable limit, uh, limit for bacteria, and there are hundreds of different people, apparently even thousands possibly, that waited in that, virtually swam in that, and they'd be coming down with disease in the days and weeks to come, and that could even hasten, of course, the disease epidemics that Almighty God has prophesied. We need to realize, brethren, we really are in the last days. I heard from some of us even here in the office and elsewhere, well, God's people are kind of discouraged and they don't think anything is happening. They're just kind of in a spiritual funk. Well, how could we be in a spiritual funk and not realize that things are swirling around us? Does God have to send the storms right here to your house to wake you up? I want to ask you in this room today and all you brethren around the world, think about it. God is moving, brethren. He's moving more powerfully in the last several months than perhaps ever before to bring about the return of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And we really need to understand that. We really do. These things are beginning to happen. Two weeks ago, I preached on end-time prophecy. Some of you remember that. And I preached exactly two days before Katrina struck. I gave that two days ahead of time. A few years ago, some of you remember, I warned about coming terrorist attacks and mentioned terrorism, and it was not more than a week or ten days later till 9-11 took place. Now, I'm not taking credit for that because I wasn't smart. God kind of put it into my mind. I didn't know that was going to happen, but God does use human instruments, and I am one of His human instruments, and I think God does put things in my mind beyond what I could do. God gets the credit, but he guided that. I didn't realize terrorist attacks were going to happen that soon. I knew they would probably come. But this worst terrorist attack on American soil in recorded history suddenly hit just a week or two after I said that. This terrible tragedy hit just two days after I gave that sermon. And yet some of our people haven't been moved by that to realize, wow, our minister is saying this, and then it happens two days later. And he had no idea it was going to happen. 
And I didn't, as far as any direct knowledge, except the knowledge of God. God does tell us what's going to happen. And we need to wake up and realize there is a very real God. And yet certain ones are in a kind of a malaise and they wonder, is God real? And why is he letting us have troubles and all that kind of thing? Well, God has always allowed his people to go through trials and tests. Always, always, always. And yet in the big picture, the great God is there. I want to read you a little bit of a letter from one of our ladies in the church down in the Gulf area. And she writes, this just came the other day, uh, September the 2nd, before the, even the storm got the very, very worst, that is the flooding. Dear Mr. Meredith, I'm an LCG member here in Lafayette, Louisiana. We have met a few times. You may recall last year we met at the feast in the Poconos where we discussed my husband's business trips to Nigeria, so on. She says, we were not affected by the hurricane because we were only on the edge of it and the western edge is always the easiest to endure. More and more, I'm seeing New Orleans becoming a microcosm of verse after verse from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Cursed in your towns, the Lord shall send upon you cursing, vexation, confusion, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do until you be destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings whereby you've forsaken me, end quote. Then she continues, right now, we are beginning to hear of the local news reports Reports of government and local officials becoming angry with each other. Those whose job it is to bring order are themselves on the edge and confused as to what to do. And she describes some of that and how men are up in the air and they're all confused and they're angry at one another. And then she describes more things. The Lord shall smite thee with consumption and with a fever and with inflammation and extreme burning and with sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue you till you're perishing. And then she describes the horrible mildew that's going to be over vast numbers of thousands of miles all over that area because of the flooding. As you can see from any news report, there are still people on tops of their roofs where temperatures are the worst five days after the storm. Scorching heat. There is bad, that being there is bad enough, but without food, water, or relief facilities, they will perish more quickly as God describes. Only the hardiest will continue. Under these circumstances, mildew, of course, is already building in the area, as well as a tremendous breeding ground for mosquitoes and the diseases they carry. Verse 26, And thy dead body shall be meat to the fowls of the air, to the beasts of the field, and no man shall chase them away. Which well, she goes right down the line through Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, prophecies that I've read to you many times and shows that step by step that type of thing was fulfilled right there in New Orleans. And she says, this is a precursor of what's coming. How sad that the bodies are piled up beside your lifeless idols, quote unquote. New Orleans is a place of spiritual filth with voodoo commonly practiced, as well as the infamous Mardi Gras, which lasted for weeks with no holds barred. And most of you know the kind of rottenness they had down there. I called my secretary, uh, Bonnie, the other day, Bonnie Miller, my former secretary, and uh, she told me, of course, she lived in New Orleans almost two years, and she said it was just awful with all of the prostitutes and the pimps and the drug dealers and one thing and the other just wandering around there. She says the most wicked place she had ever lived. And, of course, it no doubt is one of the most wicked places in the United States, along with San Francisco and parts of New York, Los Angeles, and elsewhere. She says, for the sake of all our brethren, Mr. Meredith, please warn everyone that we must get closer to God while there is time. Just between you and me, I 
uh, chastise myself because I'm somewhat fearful of these strangers in town, but I don't think I would be if we were closer to God. Please warn our people. All kinds of strangers have come up from New Orleans. She describes, I can't read all this, but kind of, you know, unusual people, let's say. And she's wondering what's going to happen. They're robbing each other. There's been rape going on and so on. She says, are they remembering the warnings of Mr. Armstrong and Scripture? God help them to wake up while there's still time. Don't get me wrong, Mr. Meredith. I do care about these poor people now displaced and lost. Many are good people. And the generosity I have seen by the people in my area is so inspiring. But it seems so clear that the Bible prophecy is coming true right in front of my own backyard. Blow your trumpet, Mr. Meredith. Uh, she says, let the nation know that you're going to start, we're going to start losing our sea gates. Well, we already have lost all but two, <laughs> one by one, until they're destroyed or we're destroyed. Blow your trumpet. We're behind you and we support you all the way. So I don't know if I should mention her name or not, but she may be happy if I did do that. But at any rate, I'm very glad to get that and sort of realize that aspect of things, and I think it is helpful to understand, brethren, these things are happening. And it's not that they're going to happen in the sweet by and by. And please, you younger people, you haven't lived for the last 56 years in God's work. I have. I came to Ambassador 56 years ago as a young 19-year-old boy, having had one year of college in Missouri, studying business administration. And I'd been hearing Mr. Armstrong since 1944. And I heard him say, as I've told you so many times, I heard him say a number of times that after the war, people said, well, Germany's going to be prostrate for a thousand years. They were bombing them, the American bombers by day and the British by night because they invented radar. And they said, Germany will not rise again for a thousand years and all this kind of thing. Well, he said, no, they will come up and they will be the political and economic and finally military heart of Europe. And he described it in great detail. After I came to college, just a few weeks, all of a sudden, it was kind of strange because I came from the Methodist Church, which we didn't know about, and which we didn't know about, the Feast of God, of course, or the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, some of the students talk about going off to the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of what? <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. But we went up there. Uncle Paul took me up, and I went up with him and my Aunt Ethel, lived in their mobile home or trailer home, as it actually was. For, and uh, no, I got to live with some of the kids in a, tra in a, uh, in a cabin. And we went up to Belknap Springs, Oregon. And here in this great big lodge with the rushing McKenzie River coming right down next to us, and if you got real quiet, you could hear it as a roaring river. Ex-President Herbert Hoover used to come fishing up there, a very beautiful area because the mountain loomed immediately right up across the river and the kind of fog would come in, kind of a romantic atmosphere in a sense, like San Francisco by the river rather than San Francisco by the bay. <laughs> but we had a great big roaring fire and here was this older man. He was only 57 years old. So now I'm a number of years, I guess 18 years older than he was back then. But of course, he seemed like an old man to me. And he was up there thundering day after day. He preached, honestly, brethren, he preached about 17 sermons in a row. 17. Because he gave the opening night and then two sermons every day for the next eight days. And I remember how moved I was by him talking about prophecy of what was going to happen and how the great God was going to intervene. And already he was saying, we're going to lose the gates of our enemies. 
and the Suez Canal will be taken away, and the Panama Canal will be taken away, and all these things are going to happen, and the national greatness we've been given would be taken away unless we as a nation get back to God and the laws of God and real Christianity. And, of course, those things have already happened. Now we've lost every single major seagate except the Rock of Gibraltar, the Strait of Gibraltar, and uh, the Falkland Islands, which control the southern tip of South America. And uh, all the others are gone. It's amazing how these things have happened in the last 56 years since I came to Ambassador College. 56 years ago this week, these things have happened. Now, to some of you younger people, 56 years might seem like a long time. But God says a thousand years is like a day. And that doesn't seem very long to God when you consider the millions of years that he and the Logos, the word, the spokesman who became the son, planned out how they would reproduce themselves through human beings and make these beings and work with them and teach them lessons over a 6,000-year period. And now that 6,000 years is almost up. And these things have been happening very rapidly from the point of view of all that time before. They really have. And Germany is already up. And Germany is going to become even much more powerful over the next several years. And you're going to see it happen right before your eyes. It's not that we're better I'm not better than these outside ministers at all. Some of them may be just as good in their human sense or their hereditary tendencies or their family as I am. I know that. Nice men. But Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham and Oral Roberts and all these preachers that get up, they don't know. They don't understand. God has not given them understanding. A good understanding have they that do His commandments. Psalm 111, verse 10. If you do God's commandments, you are given understanding, not because you have a higher IQ, but because God gives you that understanding, and they don't have that. And only the church of God and the church of God groups, let's say, which have followed God's servant, Mr. Armstrong, understand. Because frankly, there's another church of God group headquartered right near here, and they think the beast is the United States. (laughs) And that's really kind of funny. Others have lost it. One major Church of God group says, well, prophecy is not important. We're just going to preach about the good news, and the good news is not prophecy. Prophecy is bad news. So they just preach the good news and leave out prophecy. Yet our Father in heaven devoted one-fourth of the Bible to prophecy. And the prophecies are being fulfilled one thing right after the other. And God says, give His people meat in due season. Now of all times, prophecy ought to be preached because it's being fulfilled rapidly. As this lady said, right in front of my eyes, right in my backyard. She can't escape it. So let's understand, brethren. Let's realize what's happening. Let's get with it. Let's get alert. Not say we don't think anything's happening and why is God letting us have problems? Yes, He lets us have problems. God's servants have always died. Always. As I've told you, James, this vibrant young evangelist, a man of faith and power, it says there, read it. Suddenly he's dead. James, the first apostle a few years later, probably only 35 or 40, he's dead. Time after time after time, as you read the stories of the great prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles and evangelists in the New Testament, you read of people being cut off and you don't know why. Why did God allow that? We don't understand the details. Sometimes we do understand partly later on. As I said, I was there and really wondered why did God let Mr. Armstrong's son, Dick, die, my good friend, one of my two or three best friends. As time went on, I could sort of grasp certain things, how there would have been a certain tendency and 
competition and so on between Ted and Dick and other things that were going on a little bit already, other things involved. I don't want to say more than that, but I can understand it better as time went on. But I'm not God. I don't know all the details. He knows all the details. He understands fully what have play, would have played out if that young man had carried on and God let Dick Armstrong die at age 29. Age 29. So some of us have had people that we loved, and I certainly have, Carl Manair dying at nearly 67, John Gwynn at age 56, Dave Burson at age 54. We wish they all could have lived to be 70 or 80 or 90. But God didn't cut them off at age 29. God didn't cut them off at age perhaps 30 or 32 or something, as Stephen probably was. They were just barely starting out. No, God allowed them to have a few more years, and in most of these cases, many more years to serve, to help, to build, and gave them the opportunity to secure a great reward in the kingdom of God, which some of them will obviously have. And they're better off than we are. We don't have it made yet. Some of them, like John Ogwen, do, and Carl McNair and so on. They do, and I'm quite positive of that. We do not yet have it made. So let's not assume we're going to float into God's kingdom. Maybe God knows that some of us, including me, need to be around a little longer to learn lessons and to do the work of God in a certain way that He wants and to guide as He's guiding and orchestrating the situation. And I don't know the details, but He does. And I've seen He's there. Over and over I've seen that He's there. And all those years that I've been in, 56 years, since sitting in front of that big fireplace and hearing God's servant, Mr. Armstrong, thunder at us. And he did. Boy, he was filled with energy. The opening night and eight days in a row, 17 sermons in a row, I never began to hear anything like that all the rest of my life put together up until that time. We were singing. You say, what got that on your mind? Well, the first song or one of the first songs, when Israel comes out of Egypt, <laughs> we were singing, and that just hit me. That's what we sang so many times back in the early Feast of Tabernacles up in Belknap Springs in 1949, 1950, 1951. And suddenly we moved the feast then to Sigler Springs in 52 and then to Lake Water, we used to call it, now Big Sandy, Texas in 53. But God's guided His servant to say what was going to happen, the big things, and they have been happening in a remarkable way. Turn to Luke 21. Luke, turn to Luke 21. Don't you remember, brethren, you here and all you brethren around the world who may hear this? I was preaching this two weeks ago. Verse 7, what will be the sign when these things take place? He told them about false prophets. Then he said wars and world wars. Then he said great earthquakes. Verse 31. Not little earthquakes, obviously bigger earthquakes than men have experienced. Great earthquakes. I'm sorry, I can't uh, see all this as I should. Verse 11, not 31. Great earthquakes and famines and pestilences, disease epidemics. The major disease epidemics and famines haven't yet started. But I think they will begin in the next three to five years. I'm just telling you, that's what I think. That's not what the Bible says. But I think you're going to see that unfold. And there will be fearful sights. And, of course, the terrorist, word terror is used here. Terrors, which can include terrorist attacks in the Greek. Look it up. And great signs from heaven. And then they would persecute God's people. And certainly some would be killed. And then he says a little bit later, coming down to verse 24, they will, uh, uh, t- 
they will fall by the edge of the sword, some of God's people, and be led away captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down of the, uh, the, uh, the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so the great God shows these things are going to happen at the time of the end. And there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. That's what that woman mentioned, of course, as an example from Louisiana. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. All of that leads right up to Christ's second coming, which he describes in the next verse. We're seeing not the end of those things, not the most powerful example of those things, but a beginning of those things with this hurricane and the terrible tsunami that the Pacific regions experienced a few years ago. These things are already beginning to happen right in front of our eyes. Now, brethren, turn, if you would, to Matthew 24 again. Matthew 24. I should say again, I guess we haven't been to that uh, particular one yet, but turn to Matthew 24, if you would, at this point. And here we find the same Olivet Prophecy describing kingdom against kingdom and then whole alliances in verse 7. And there will be famines, disease epidemics, and earthquakes. Luke mentions great earthquakes. All these are the beginning of sorrows, not the end. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. He says some of his servants will be killed. And brethren, they have been. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He does not say we're going to have a Sunday afternoon picnic. We've been saying that over and over. When some of these trials come, people act shocked. But I've been saying for decades in the work of God, way back in Big Sandy, back before I went to Big Sandy as deputy chancellor, I preached many, many times that many of God's own servants would die before the tribulation. And you older brethren remember that. That's not something new. And then many will be offended, hate one another, betray one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness, a whole wave, let's do our own thing, kind of an attitude sweeping over our Western nations, abound. We see that all the time on the kind of songs that are coming out, the cheap, vulgar songs and intimations of, of, of adultery and fornication and, well, kind of making fun of God in the movies and the television and so on. Because that attitude, the love of many, will wax cold. See, they can make fun of God. They can make fun of the true servants of God. And they're very good at that. Satan is very good at using the uh, tool of, of humor to try to make fun of God and to sort of lessen the impact of what the true ministers of God are saying. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end. And I want to talk to you this afternoon about enduring with faith. Enduring with faith. We need to have faith and understand. And I want to give you again the big pictures I've already started to do. of These big things that are happening. They're not little things. They are massive events and world events. That God said specifically and that Mr. Armstrong said and that I've said and others of God ministers have said years before they happen. And a couple of cases recently just days before a specific event occurred. Which is kind of remarkable. Except God guides these things. And it is important we grasp that fact. He's in charge. Turn then with that thought in mind. How are you going to endure with faith and keep the right perspective through trial after trial? 
Well, we need to go back to the beginning of our Christian lives in a sense. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Great multitudes went with Christ and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me, if you're going to be a true Christian, here's the attitude you've got to have, brethren. You must. Please understand that, every one of you. Some of you have been around a long time. Maybe you still don't have that attitude. Think about it. As Dr. Scott Winnell said in his very fine sermonette, are you teachable? Can you listen? Can you learn before it's too late? As this lady said, please warn them before it's too late. Great multitudes went, if anyone come to me and does not hate, or the Greek word means love less by comparison, his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You've got to love God and love the true Christ so much that even your dear relatives are not as important at all in your sight as, as God is. God has got to become very, very real to you. Very real to you. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now that doesn't hit us maybe as much as it should. But back at that time, my brethren, if you lived in, in the nation of Israel and you'd heard men screaming and bellowing, crying out off and on, sometimes hour after hour for two or three days, hung on a cross along the road, and they had thousands of them crucified back at that time, not just Jesus. You know that. And you'd seen that. That would have a great deal of meaning to you. And maybe we need to think about that. Are we willing to go through trials and tests or the minute one of our loved ones dies or the minute we lose our job or the minute our life seems a little boring and great huge things are not happening the next day? We say, oh, I just don't understand. Where is God? Yes, where is God? God is in heaven and God is working out His purpose in a powerful way. He's guiding these events in the major nations of the world. And He has the little church, the little flock, the living church of God, lively and living, doing a work here on earth which is expanding and expanding and expanding. And as we do our part, yes, we've got to be sure we do, but if we do and keep on and grow and give our lives to God ever more fully, God will use our little group to have a tremendous impact. And eventually, tens or hundreds of millions of people around the world will know about your little church and the message we preach. And they won't like it. They will not like it. It will not be popular, I have to tell you. But they're going to know about it. And we're going to get right in their face if we have to and tell them this is going to happen. This is what the great God says and nothing can stop it. You don't have to believe it. It's going to happen anyway. That's what we've got to tell them and help them wake up. We're talking about reality here. And people then go home from a sermon and then they turn on the television and the make-believe, the make-believe, the make-believe comes along and they can see these movies about Armageddon or about some storm or air, these Air Force movies used to plane crashing and guys on the plane with a gun. And you see those things and pretty soon all that make-believe stuff blends in with what God says and what God says becomes less real to a lot of people. If people keep watching and watching movies and television and and they're living a world to make-believe. The reality does not hit them. Satan is very clever to get your mind off of reality. Don't let that happen to you. But he says, if you don't bear your cross, if you're not willing to go to death because God that gives you life and breath and come after me, he went to his death. You cannot be my disciple. 
Don't kid yourself. You cannot. Some of you have suffered hurt. Someone thought did something and you thought, oh, they're trying to hurt me or they're trying to get me or my job is being changed around or, or the minister and some of you outlying churches didn't make you the next deacon and it made someone else the next deacon. Or some other woman got to, got to give the coffee pot to the church, as we found years ago. So the women got upset at the one woman because she beat them in giving the coffee pot. And here's the whole world growing up. And people wonder about who's getting credit for, for having the coffee pot. Think about that. Let's get our minds off this peanut stuff and on the big stuff that's really happening. For which of you intending to build a tower... And certainly if you're going to be a son of God, that is a tremendous accomplishment. Far more important than building a skyscraper. Does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Are you willing to totally surrender to give your life to God and consider that it's not your life anymore, it's God's life. Christ has bought and paid for you. And so you have to say, whatever happens, I can go up the elevator or down the elevator. They can send me to here and they can send me there. It doesn't make any difference. My life belongs to God. My life is God's. And if God chooses to take my life before age 70, or in my case, a few years after 70, and I don't get to live as long as Mr. Parting is, so be it. My life is God's life. It's not my life. I've got to have that attitude, brethren. You have to have that attitude. We can't play games. God knows what we're thinking. Does our life really belong to God? Are we waiting to get discouraged? Are we waiting to get our feelings hurt? Are we going around with vanity? Vanity, vanity. That is vanity, that kind of reasoning. He says, verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You've got to forsake your job, if need be, your family. You've got to forsake everything there is, including your own life. And to say, my life belongs to you, God. Salt is good. Salt gives food that thing and meaning, in a sense. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the manure pile. Not good for anything. But men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. We need to understand the depth of real conversion. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about some people just come to church and others are really converted. He used the term, they are conquered by God. Are you conquered by God? Have you really given your life to God? You consider it is not your life anymore, it's God's life, and then it's pretty hard to hurt your feelings once you get that attitude. In fact, it's very hard. You just know it's in God's hands and He's going to take care of it. So we need to have that attitude, brethren, and get real. Time is short. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, if you would. Matthew chapter 10, and I'm going to break into this instruction, which is a commission and a prophecy. In verse 1, he called his 12 disciples, told them to go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. And they did. And then... Near the end of the prophecy, he says in verse 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death. Even family members will turn on one another, Jesus said. And father, a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That happened. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Can you endure with faith? Can you put your faith and trust in the great God of creation? 
You can if you've developed the attitude that your life is not your life. It's given to God. And if you prove to the depth of your being that this book is inspired by God, that there is a real God. And this book is inspired by that God. Once you really believe that and then are willing to read the book, it's pretty simple. Because our message is not complicated. All you need to do is read it and there it is. It just leaps out at you. They have all these grotesque and complicated explanations of, of grace in these Protestant churches and how somehow Jesus' goodness is imputed to us and we're not really good, but somehow His, His goodness is called our goodness, so we're really not good and we really, we're supposed to keep the commandments, but we really can't, so we really can't keep them all and they have all these word games. We don't play those word games. Jesus said, keep the commandments. And He began to explain them. We say, keep the commandments, all ten of them, no word games. No complicated theology. Just do what God says. And do what Jesus did do. Keep the Sabbaths He kept. Keep the holy days He kept. It's not very complicated. Not complicated at all. But we've got to prove those basic things to where we really deeply believe them, even to be willing to give our lives for them, if God is real to us. So, he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. So he's talking obviously here about the time of the end. This prophecy was a prophecy for them. And it comes right down to the time of the end. It's dual. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. Well, he was right there saying that. And he wasn't talking about following them up on some immediate tour at all. When you read the story, he's talking about a dual situation. They were to do that, but his servants down through these last 2,000 years were to do that same thing, and that means us. A disciple is not above his teacher or a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be as his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master the house, even Jesus Christ, the son of God, Beelzebub, the leader of the demons, how much more will they call those of his household? Are they call, are going to call Mr. Dick Ames and me, these wonderful preachers with great love and balance and wisdom, and strange people following Armstrongism and preaching that strange doctrine of British Israelism and old legalism, and they're getting us back under the law of Moses and legalism, and they'll keep using all this stuff. And then if they put our picture in the paper, why, well, look here, this is where it'll be like that. <laughs> they'll catch me in some kind of pose like that. And that's what they'll put in the paper. If you notice how they do, if there's somebody like Richard Nixon or some bad guy, they suddenly start putting bad pictures of them. They can make you look bad pretty cleverly. The average person doesn't know the way these people work, but that's the way they work. They're very clever. And they'll be able to defame you and put you down and make you look like an idiot to those who don't understand. But I hope you will understand. Because I'm going to give my life to this, and I've been doing it for 56 years, and I intend to keep right on till I die. If God allows, I want me to die with my boots on. I was out in Los Angeles church before we moved back here preaching. And I was talking about how, well, I, I want to die doing the work. And my son Jim was standing there and some of the leading men and elders and deacons standing around. He says, yeah, I know how you want to die, Dad. He says, you want to be up there saying, repent, brethren, really repent. <laughs> he illustrated it. That's the way I want to die. I want to be right there preaching a diet action in some way like that. Now, they might not be the way it works out. I understand that. But that would be the, west, the best way to go. And Jim understood that about his dad. And that's the way we would like to go, doing God's work. 
But nevertheless, we're going to have to die, some of us, in God's work, and we need to prepare for that and not be shocked if God puts that choice right in front of us. So, he says, flee to the next city, because you will not have gone over the cities of Israel. We're to try to reach all the cities of Israel, and what does that mean? Well, he doesn't spell it out. We have a pretty good idea because of what's revealed in the book of Acts. We're to go there, you know, through the radio and television probably today rather than personally. But there may be certain cities we don't reach thoroughly at all, but we'll try to reach the nation as a whole. So if people were honestly seeking for God, they could find us. That's God's responsibility to let us have that much of an impact so that the people in the major cities of Israel especially are seeking for God. They can find God. They can find the truth. That's his responsibility. He's in charge. And he will let us come to have that much power before it's all over. So he said, if they called the master of the house the prince of demons, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed. God's going to lift the lid off of all their machinations and all their dirty tricks department and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Come right out with the truth. As that lady said, warn them. God tells me back in Isaiah 58 verse 1, Lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their sins. That's what God tells us. So speak it. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body. Don't fear them. They can't hurt you. Some of these men killed some of our brethren. This one man, Terry in Milwaukee, but these people should not have been afraid. And in the very heart, they may not have been afraid. They may have understood this. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. That's the one to fear. Yes, you're going to die someone someday anyhow. And if you die in God's service, that may be better and would well, obviously be much better than turning aside, but maybe better than just dying quietly in your own bed. If you're doing it as an act of God, and you're right there serving God. Fear Him. The great God is the one to stand in awe of, and know that, yes, our, our, our reward is not here. It's just not here. That Again, God has to be real, or you can't think that way. But if God is extremely real to you and you pray and you know that there are angels in this room and if you pray on the way to church and back from church, help me to understand, help me to do this, guide me God, guide my life, help me to give it to you and you pray to God like that all day long, then God becomes real to you. Your hand is in God's hand and you walk with God. And you know that if God allows you to die, the next split second as far as you're concerned is the resurrection. And the resurrection becomes real to you because that is the ultimate reward that we're looking for. Not eternal life in this flesh, but the resurrection from the dead. And that's what we're appointed to again and again. So fear Him, the great Creator, who's able to destroy both soul and body, or even the potential of life and the body. In Gehenna, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Little old birdies flitting around, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? Nearly all translations have it this way. Jesus, the Son of the great God, is telling us that our Father in heaven, my Father and your Father, if you're really converted, if God's Spirit is in you, He's your Father, He literally knows about every single bird. You say, well, God's not worried about words. No, I don't think He's worried about the birds. But you know, brethren, I've explained it, but wrap your mind around it. 
Wrap your mind around this. Little puny man with our little pen heads are able to invent these computers that spew out, now they're saying, billions of bits of information per second. That, I can't fully grasp that. Billions of pieces of information per second. And they can absorb billions of pieces of information. If the great God who made our little tiny brains and he allows us to do that, what kind of God is it that cannot remember about some birds and men's hairs and so on? You understand it? How great is your God? If man is able to do this, how much greater a mind does that God have who made your mind and made you, that is using the generic sense of mankind, man capable of doing those things? of storing up billions with a B pieces of information and spewing them out in one second from a machine that little puny man has invented. Yes, God is able to know about the sparrows. He doesn't have to sit around and worry about, oh, I wonder how I'm going to remember. I don't think he loses any sleep over that. He's got that kind of mind. His mind is so far greater than ours, it's hard to grasp that that's what your Bible says. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And some of you have lots of hair. Some of us older have little hair or less hair. But God knows every single hair. Now, I don't think God sits around counting hair, but he's completely aware and he could know in a split second if he needs to know. He's totally aware of every part of your body. If your brain's not working just right, he knows that. If your hearing is not working just right, he knows that. If your bladder is not working just right and you have problems going to the bathroom, he knows that and he's your father. He may allow those things to happen to some of you older people. He may allow us to go through trials and tests. He's allowed me to be hard of hearing and my eyes are going a little bit as I get older. Remember one of his greatest servants of all, one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Isaac, one of the great three patriarchs of all time, was so blind near the end of his days, and I was figuring it up with my wife. I think we was, he said, I say about 17 years, I believe, I said, uh, before Isaac died. I'm not, I better go refigure that, but something like that. He lived a long time after he uh, sent uh, approximately, I think it was 17 years, I figured, 12, 16 or 17, two different sevens when, when Jacob was working for these two different wives, and then some time before that and time after that. Anyway, then he came back and Isaac was still alive, so maybe 16 or 18 years later, he finally died, and he was, to, he was 180 years old when he died. So at any rate, uh, he, he long before he died, and he lived uh, twice as long, uh, over twice as long as Mr. Partian has been alive, and so the length of life was longer, and you extrapolate that back in a sense. And so by the time he was in a sense 60 or 70 years old, he was already losing his sight. So God allows those things to happen today. Of course he did. He allowed that to happen to Isaac, his own servant. And we're not all going to have the same body at age 70 or 80 or 90 that we had at age 20. Get used to it. I'm getting used to it. <laughs> and you old folks, I guess you're all getting used to it. But if some of us die before age 70, it may be that God is sparing us a lot of embarrassment and problems and things that would come later that he knows about and his mercy and there are things like that he knows we don't know. But again, God knows the answer. The very hairs of your head, everything about you. You've got a certain disease. God knows exactly when it starts. 
He knows exactly how far along it is. If your life is God's life and you believe that, you trust God, you walk with God, He may heal you along the way supernaturally. He may let you do your part and do certain things that are right and then go above and beyond that to cut it short. And He does that in thousands of cases, as we know, healings and interventions and blessings. We're grateful. But He may allow some to die before age 70 and some to live past age 70. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You're made in the image of the great creator of the entire universe, our Father in heaven. And we know the opening prayer mentioned how blessed we are to be made in God's image and potentially be his sons. He's very concerned with us. So we need to appreciate that and not be afraid of anything. Therefore, whoever confesses me, the true Jesus Christ, before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven. And brethren, we sometimes deny Jesus Christ not just by words, but by the way we live and the things we do and the way we act. We act as though Christ is not real. And we go along sometimes hating one another unwilling to forgive each other, getting our feelings hurt about the smallest things, little pinhead things, that does not honor the name of Jesus Christ at all. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Christ did not come that way. And he says that very clearly. Yet all these Protestants come along and they're, well, you know, Jesus is just a God of love and he wouldn't condemn anyone for homosexuality and he wouldn't condemn anyone for this and that and something else. What kind of Bible have they been reading? Not the one I read. Of course he would condemn such people, but he would be quick to forgive them if they repent. That's the first thing. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And then and only then will you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the missing, the missing R word, as my article in a recent Tomorrow's World explained. The mainstream Christian world does not understand the word repent. They don't get it. And they certainly don't practice it. But he says here, Don't think that I came to bring priests, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Sometimes it goes right down in your family and you have to serve God anyway. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross. Here we come again to this fantastic commitment. This awesome commitment that our Father in heaven wants us to make. Our Father wants you and he wants me to come to the place that we really believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who serve him. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we've got to really believe that to the depths of our being and act on that belief. So he who does not take up his cross is not willing to die, is not willing to go through upset conditions, not willing to go through torture, not willing to go through all kinds of trials and follow after me is not worthy of me. You're not worthy of him because he made you he gives you life and breath, then he turned around and died for you even after that. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And I've used this verse a number of times, but brethren, we need to really get it. 
Are you finding your life? Is your main part of your life an interest centered around taking care of self and you want to be reasonably comfortable and you want things to kind of go your way and if they don't go your way, you be pretty quickly lose faith or get upset at others or get upset at God? That's not what this is talking about. That's exactly the opposite. You're not supposed to find your life. You're not supposed to try to take care of self, take care of number one all the time, but honestly try to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants all of us to be. So we've got to learn that to the depths of our being. So I hope all of us can realize this. As event after event and prophecy takes place, we must understand, we must really understand and know that our God is real. Our God, the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel is real and that He is very close. That God is here through the power of His Spirit. There are angels right around this hall right now. That God is real. Is there going to be some terrible prophetic event in the next few days? The fourth anniversary of 9-11 is tomorrow. Will they wait till the day after tomorrow, since it's a Sunday, where more people would be gathered together? Or they will they wait the terrorists until the 13th, which is the next day, just sort of a humorous perverted humor. Well, we'll get them on the 13th and let them worry about unlucky 13. I don't know that. So I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying, think about it. If you get inside the mind of a terrorist, would they love to attack us now? Probably more than most times recently because we're so terribly weakened. If they hit us now, right after this horrible thing in New Orleans and the whole Gulf, wow, the nation would be in absolute shock at that time. They may not, but these are things to watch. And pray and understand. Are we against people? Do we want them to get hurt? No. If people are hurt out in Los Angeles from a terrible earthquake or a big container ship coming in or a big container ship coming in Houston or New York and blowing up half the city, we want to help. We want to pray for them. We want to help our brethren. And if we have extra left over in our relief fund, we'll help their friends, their neighbors, their relatives, human beings. They're not all evil. Some are just blind. But God lets things happen to the unjust and the unjust. And if you're not in God's church, circumstance, time and chance happen to all, Solomon wrote. And God lets time and chance happen to people in the world even more often than he does his own people. We know that. They've got to be humbled, shaken, to be able to learn the lesson. So we need to watch these things, to be alert and know that the great God is intervening powerfully to break the pride of our power to take this nation and begin to finally shake it like a rag doll. So people finally say at the end, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as they come back weeping and shaking and repenting from the concentration camps. As you read back in Jeremiah chapter 31, weeping as they come. God's going to have to bring them to that, otherwise they argue. You get these nice people, and oh, they keep Sunday, and they have their social life, and well, your Saturday worship, that's not very good to me. I might lose some friends, or I might lose my job, and they'll argue until they're blind. They will not change. But God says, yes, you will change. And he will get through to them. He has a way of getting their attention. So we've got to realize that we ourselves have our life given to God already. And be sure that we've done that. He who finds his life, who constantly is aware of, of what he wants and why he wants it for himself, will lose it. He's not going to have eternal life unless he has a concept. His life is not his life. And he who loses his life for my sake, because he's given his life to Christ, then he 
that person will find it. So that's very important. So we've got to die, all of us, before the resurrection, except for the few who live right up to the resurrection. And we must not be shocked, for our lives belong to Jesus Christ when we really understand and if we're really converted. Picture the man after God's own heart. He's going to be your boss in a few years, perhaps. I don't know all the details. Maybe all of us will be at the headquarters and David won't, but, you know, he might be. We don't know the specific things. He's going to be the king over all 12 tribes under Jesus Christ, the man after God's own heart, King David of Israel. Notice some things David wrote and why God loved him and why he was a man after God's own heart. This attitude, brethren, must be our attitude. Turn back to Psalm 57. I've been reading through the Psalms again recently. I skip around reading some in the Old Testament and some in the New. And, and, but some of these things are tremendously inspiring. Here's the man of God, David, when he fled from Saul and hid in the cave. Picture this. This young man, probably only about 30, no, 26 or 8 years old. He wasn't king until he was 30. 26 or 8 year old young man. Maybe the age of my sons. And he's hiding out in a cave. He's scared for his very life. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. That's the whole point. Is God real to you? You've got to seek God, brethren. How many times have you fasted in this past year? Do you fast once or twice a month? And during that day of fasting, do you take extra hours to pray, to study, to get on your knees as part of your prayer and study and even meditation and try to think things through before God? God, why am I here? I've had these experiences. Show me. Teach me. Help me to understand where I'm wrong. Please help us as a church to understand anything that's wrong. Help us to change it. Help us to be your tools. Help us to be your servants. Guide us, O God. Do you pray that way? Cry out to God with your whole heart that way? David did, my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. That's a beautiful phrase, I think. I know when I was having to hide out in Hawaii and hide out in Glendora, I, I remember reading this expression many times. They were after me, some big guys in Pasadena. They wanted to get me. They wanted to destroy me. And one of their two or three top leaders in the whole work said, I'll break you, I'll smash you, I'll destroy you. And he said it just like that. He shouted it at me. He is dead. In the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until all these calamities have passed by. Well, there are going to be a lot of calamities come on us. And God may let some of us die before the resurrection. That's why there is a resurrection, as a matter of fact. If everybody lived right up till Christ coming, there wouldn't need to be a resurrection. So David had to die. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus, all the apostles, all the great men and women of God are dead. Is it so strange that some of us might die a little bit earlier than the resurrection? I will cry out to God. And I know talking to my friend Mordecai Joseph, a Hebrew teacher, he said when this is mentioned, if you look in the Hebrew word, it literally means that. We don't often do that because we've got this nice Anglo-Saxon background, most of us, and maybe some of you uh, Hispanics or blacks, you don't have that. Because you're among us, so you learn this. Be careful. Don't say too much. Don't sing too loud. Don't show too much emotion, you know. But the whites overdo that. We learned that, I think, from the English and have a little bit of a subdued way of singing, a little bit subdued way of expressing ourselves. 
But these were Jews. <laughs> they had emotion and passion. And God loves that if it's done in the right way. I will cry out, yelling out to God sometimes, in a sense, not uncontrolled, but just with this whole being. Father, help me. That's the way David prayed. To God who performs all things for me, he shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. These big, tough guys working for Saul. David was not a big man. Now, of course, the little Sunday school uh, picture books I used to have showed him like he's a little 8 or 12-year-old boy. No, he wasn't that. He was a young warrior. He may have been average size, but he wasn't as big as some of the other great big men. He was obviously not a little shrimp. He was a strong, and they admired his strength. And he was a battle. He was a warrior. Did very well. But he was not unusually big. But he had tremendous power, faith, courage, and dedication. So he said, He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. I'm sorry, I'm reading that. My soul is among lions, so these strong warriors were out to kill him. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. They've been stirred up by Saul and his other men, men, men uh, to want to kill David. O exalted, or be exalted, he says, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be above all the earth. You see, if you're God's servant, then God will fight your battles. That doesn't mean you'll all live to be exactly 70 and then collapse on your 70th birthday, or you'll all live to be 90. But if there's no other good reason why you should die sooner, He will intervene. He will fight your battles. He will deliver you. He will bring you back from some trouble over and over. He may let you go through the trouble for a while. He let Joseph be down and out for 13 years from age 17 to age 30. 13 years he had to be put down, as we'll say. They've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dug a pit before me, his enemies. And in the midst of it, they've fallen themselves. Some of my enemies had to fall into a pit. He said in verse 9, I will praise you, O Eternal, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches to the heavens. That's inspiring when you think about it. How great is God's mercy? Your mercy reaches to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. David had such a tremendous attitude of faith and courage and just worshiping God, adoring God, honoring God, trusting. Use the word trust over and over in God. Turn to Psalm 62 now, brethren. Psalm 62. Truly, my soul quietly or silently waits for God. Sometimes you think things aren't happening fast enough. The work is not growing fast enough. Prophecies aren't happening fast enough to be exciting for you. You say, well, I'll look around in the world and everything's the same. Well, it's happening awfully fast compared to God's timetable in the last 6,000 years. Looking back over the last 56 years of my life, I can see things have really happened, one right after the other. But people get upset and they want God to do certain things according to their timetable. So he says, I silently wait for God. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock. God is my rock, my Petra, my deliverer, my salvation, my defense. I shall greatly be moved. 
How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, he's telling about his enemies. Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies and bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly, these enemies of David. He said in verse uh, 8, trust in him. Trust in God at all times. That's the key, brethren. Put your faith and trust in God. Believe that God is there. See the big picture. Know that God is your Father. Every hair of your head is numbered. Pour out your heart before Him. Learn to do that as you pray. Pour out your heart with emotion. Say, God, I don't understand. Things are happening. Help me, but guide me. Intervene. And if you pour out your heart, God will give you comfort. He will give you encouragement. He will hear your prayer if you really mean it. And yet go ahead and do your part to obey Him and serve Him. Pour out your heart. God is a refuge for us. So David had that attitude in all of these psalms that he wrote. Verse 11, God has spoken once, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Eternal, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. What is your work? What do you actually accomplish? What do you do? Do you talk the Christian life and yet you go around hurting others? or putting them down, getting upset at them, or whatever. So we've got to think about it. And again, as Dr. Scott Winnell, be willing to be taught. Are you teachable? Are you trying to learn from this, having the mind of God? Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. Do you seek God early in the morning before the things can intervene? Are you willing to learn that lesson, to seek God right away before you get distracted? My soul thirsts for you. Do you thirst for God? If you do, you'll thirst to study His Word. It would be precious. You'll want to get on your knees and cry out to God. In a dry and thirsty land where there's no water, so have I looked for you in my sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. And in the end, God does have loving kindness. He always is with us. He guides us. And He brings us into His family as His sons, finally. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. While I'm alive, I'm going to praise my God, my Father, my King, my Rock. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. My soul shall praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed. Even at night, David prayed, thought about God. I meditate on you in the night watches. Do you pray sometimes through the night? If you wake up, do you sneak off into another room if your mate's sleeping nearby? And just quietly get on your knees and pray for 10 or 20 minutes to sort of get closer to God. And then you know you'll get back to sleep then when you get back in bed. Because God is so real. Because you're wanting to get back close to Him. You want this fellowship with Him morning, noon, and night, and through the night if need be. Is God that real to you? Do you have that fellowship? That fellowship with God? Because you've been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings. Here it is again. Under the shadow of God's wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows those close behind you. So God is blessing David and guiding David and helping, of course, David in every way. But boy, he gave him trials and tests, that for sure. So we do need to understand. Back in Proverbs 24, if you turn there with me at this time, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, a section I've often read, and I guess I read it even the other day in an office meeting, but I'll keep reading it. I won't quit. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Some problems come and you give up real quick. Why? 
because God is not real to you. You don't fully trust in God, so understand that. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. As I've said, my brethren, the greatest slaughter in human history is just ahead of us. It really is. And we, as we see these things in the Gulf Coast, we need to get excited. As we see this coming terrorist attack, whenever and however it is, there's going to be one. Let's say that is another milestone toward the kingdom of God. We're sorry about the people, but this and this and this and this have got to happen. It's got to get darkest before the dawn. It's got to be that way. And if some of us die, some of us are upset, some of our cities are torn down, so be it. This is not our city. We have a continuing city, the city of God, the kingdom of God, the holy city, descending down from God finally. That's our city. That's what we're looking forward to. So we've got to have that attitude. We've got to reach these people stumbling to the slaughter because we love them, not because we're mad at them, but say, please wake up. The bridge down the way is washed out. You're going to plunge right in the water. Wake up before it's too late. Get awake. Understand what's about to happen to you and your friends and your relatives. If you say, surely we didn't know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? And he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? He knows that you and the church know what's coming. And will he not render to each man according to his works or his deeds? How much do you serve? How much are you totally given to God in your life, your time, your talents? Yes, your money, everything you have, every breath of your life, is it given to God in your intent and your purpose? God looks at that. He's weighing. He's trying to see, is this person all out for me? Is this person all out for my purpose? Does he really want to be my son forever? So he's watching our actions and all these things. Let's get the zeal of God and giving our lives to God and doing the work of God, brethren. Turn back down now to the book of Daniel, if you would, Daniel 11. Turn to back to Daniel 11 and verse 31. Here we find the end times described, and Mr. Armstrong often showed this was kind of a breaking point where it's a dual prophecy. Some happened back then, but a lot of it, most of it from now on is talking about the end. And forces shall be mustered by him. Daniel eleven thirty one, And this him is primarily the coming beast power, the coming dictator, the coming Hitler. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. We've got to watch Jerusalem. It's going to be very exciting. And we should watch it. It should be interesting, you know, not just something sad to say, wow, this is about to happen. This is about to happen. Watch. Watch God move. God, watch God move in the weather. Watch God move in the, in the disease epidemics. Watch God move as our national debt gets worse and things are coming down and we know the society has to end. Thy kingdom come. Speed it up, Father. Send your kingdom soon. Watch this thing. See the Jews get together and get ready for temple sacrifices. Maybe just on an altar. Maybe a full temple. And they're going to get you know, some kind of altar or temple. And then there's going to be a horrible abomination put there. And animal sacrifices first. And then they'll be stopped. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. We know that this was a time when Antiochus Epiphanes was about to rise up. And he was a type of the final beast power. And the people of God had to fight him and fight the enemy at that time. But it applies to God's people today. And those are the people who understand 
God grant that you're among those who really understand, shall instruct many for many days, and yet they shall fall by the sword and flame and captivity and plundering. Are any of them going to die? Yes, it says many of them will die. That's kind of shaking. I don't want to lose all our members, but brethren, these things are going to happen. And God's people are going to be tried and tested. But in the end, as Mr. Armstrong said, we win. We've got to go through the obstacle course first. We've got to show God where we, un where we stand with all our being first. But boy, in the end, the reward is awesome. You say, well, how can we be sure of that? We can be sure of that because we prove that there is a great God, that this Bible is His Word, and because of these great, awesome events happen just like God said on ancient Babylon, just like God said on ancient Egypt, just like God said on the Roman Empire of old and on the revived Roman empires, and just like God said is beginning to happen on the United States and British Commonwealth as we lose this Seagate, that Seagate, our nations go down, the Gentiles come up, the United States have awesome things, massive things all over the earth, like God said. That God is real. So we need to understand. And we will then instruct many for many days, and yet they'll fall, His own people. Now they, when they fall, they'll be aided with a little help, but many shall join them with intrigue. Our church is probably going to grow a lot bigger the last couple of years. People will be scared to death. Some may come in for the wrong reason, just to save their hides or even to try to be spies and upset us. I know that, frankly, I used to think even in worldwide, and we're certainly going to happen more here near the end as we get stronger and better known. I don't think we're that well known yet, but there may be some guy sitting right over there that's an FBI agent or a member of the CIA. He'll be quietly taking notes. He'll see the brethren taking notes, and he'll take notes. Meredith said this, and Meredith said that. And they'll be trying to see if I say something about uh, disloyalty and overthrowing the government where they could get, get me. But I won't say that, hopefully. <laughs> I'll be talking about the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, but not overthrowing this government by human means. And you'll be kind of puzzled. And you'll think, well, these people believe this stuff. I don't believe this. Why, you know, but I'm hearing this strange guy. And you know, we'll have those people here. All kinds of people come into the church near the end for various reasons. And some of those of understanding shall fall. And brethren, some have already fallen. As I've said, you look at the list of the vice presidents. I don't want to name them all, but in that picture back in the 1969 envoy, only about one or two are with us or have ever been with us. The rest are gone, dead, or even the ones dead except for Mr. Armstrong left the church. So they're going to fall, and they shall be aided with a little help but many shall join with them by intrigue. I'm sorry, some of understanding shall fall to refine them. You see, God is trying to refine us. He's putting us through a furnace of fire to refine them, to purge them, and to make them white. God wants us to have white garments. He wants us to be clean. That doesn't mean just that we don't have sexual problems or get drunk. It means that in our attitude, we honestly love God with all our heart and we love our neighbor so we don't have fights and quarrels and upset feelings and people stabbing each other in the back and people hating each other and all that kind of thing. We don't have it. Must not have it. Get rid of it. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. Those are the big things. He's not concerned about the tiny things to make them white until the time of the end. We're in that time because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will and this coming dictator is going to exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
this confuses some people because it's very much like the description of the coming great false prophet, you know, back in 2 Thessalonians. But when you understand it, they both do that. They both have the attitude they're kind of a god. This is the dictator spoken of here. And he shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women. He's not going to really believe in the great false church. He lets that church be there to support him, but he doesn't trust them and they don't really trust him either, kind of like Adolf Hitler. He let them be there as long as they were helpful. But in their place, he shall honor a god of fortresses. This coming dictator in Europe is going to have new chemical and biological weapons and direct energy weapons and things that have never been invented yet, way beyond what they have today. It's going to be awesome. And the Germans are very, very good at inventing things like that, and they will. And maybe some of the Russians will join in, as we've said, and suddenly they'll have an army and a military power three to ten times bigger than they are now if that happened. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, and he shall advance, uh, which he shall acknowledge, and so on. From the time of the end, or at the time of the end, verse 40, the king of the south shall attack him. Another thing to watch. It's exciting. It's exciting. One of these other branches of the church, which is strength led by kind of a dictator, says the king of the south is Iran. I want to say publicly, the king of the south is not Iran, and is not going to be Iran, and never will be Iran. Iran is north of Jerusalem. The king of the south will probably be Egypt or Saudi Arabia from the area south of Jerusalem, not Iran. But the king of the south will rise up, leading some kind of Arab combine. And the Iranians are not Arabs, they're Persians anyway. They're slightly different people. But he's going to rise up and get a whole bunch of Arab nations, probably cut off the oil from Europe, and the coming beast dictator will be furious and come down there like a whirlwind, you could put in there the word blitzkrieg. Adolf Hitler had the blitzkrieg, lightning war. And because the Europeans have more advanced technical knowledge, he will overwhelm them. And he'll enter into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That's where he's going to go. Anyway, news from the east and north shall trouble him. East and north of Jerusalem, as you know, is the Soviet Union and China. This huge 200 million man army then starts down. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And before all humanity in that final battle would destroy themselves, getting scared and finally use the ultimate weapon, Christ comes back and stops it. And he shall plant the palace of, his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, and he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Tied that right in with Revelation 19, verse 20, where the beast and the false prophet were taken supernaturally, and no one helped them. They were cast into the lake of fire by God. At that time, what time? The time of the end, as we saw back in verse 40, chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, our great archangel Michael's going to stand who helped protect Israel and the people of God from utter destruction. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people will be delivered. Michael will see that we're not utterly wiped out as a nation, I mean. And everyone who's found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It's the time of the resurrection from the dead. And we're going to have people coming up out of the graveyard out in Pasadena, California. We'll have Mr. Armstrong, 
Loma D. Armstrong, Dick Armstrong. We'll have my wife Margie. We'll have all kinds of leading men and women of God who'll just come roaring up right out of that place and back in, in uh, near Gladewater and Big Sandy. Dick Ames has told me he thought there were more people there. He might be right. So many of the older people died at Big Sandy. And they're going to come right up out of that graveyard. It's going to be quite a procession from those two places above all other places. But it doesn't make any difference from where you come up. You're going to come up. If you're God's sons, if you're God's daughters, if you're God's servants and have God's spirit, you're going to come up and nothing can stop you. It's the time of the resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Make your choice. Serve God with your being. Put your faith and trust in the God who gives you life and breath and go all out. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Consider that your body is given to God. Your life belongs to God. Christ bought and paid for you. And so you endure to the end with faith. Not with ear, but with faith in the living God. So everyone who's been found written in the book will rise up one way or the other. And those who are wise, and I've often read this and we should often read it. That's us, we hope. Let's be sure it means us, individually, all of you brethren around the world, all of us. Those who are wise, truly wise, with spiritual understanding, shall shine. Glorified faces just shining like the sun, like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness. Is our whole being involved in turning many to righteousness? Reach out to people, get this message out, help people, and yet in the right way live it ourselves. We can't preach it unless we try to live it. We've got to be examples of it. We've got to love each other, love the world, serve one another, not be trying to catch people in little things, help them, encourage them, build them, inspire them, love them in every way we can. Those who are wise shall shine, and those who turn many to righteousness, many shall shine like the stars forever and ever. Let that be us, and let us endure with faith, and with love and joy, knowing we're involved in the greatest crusade in human history. God has given us that opportunity. Let's seize it with zeal and with joy and endure to the end with faith.